Unashamed podcast. This is a place where together we can navigate through life's ups and downs with all of the vulnerability, compassion, and openness that we can muster, celebrating our bravery and all of it. Along with the help of guests from all walks of life, we'll discover new truths while doing some unlearning and we'll gain valuable tools for becoming who we already are while also uncovering our divine gifts. I'm Jade Bryce and I'm so thankful that you're here. All right. So I don't know how many of you know my story when it comes to my religious wounding or my religious trauma. It's quite a story. (laughs) And after listening to this episode, if you're interested in more about that story and more about how I healed that story or how I healed that wounding and that trauma and just what that journey looked like and uh, all that came from it, then reach out to me on Instagram and let me know, or put it in the, um, review section of your, whether you're listening on iTunes or on Spotify, put it on the review section so that I can see it. And I will record a solo cast about that part of my journey, that part of my story and and what I have to offer there for those of you who may have similar wounding or similar stories. The, uh, I bring that up because the guest that we're having on today is a man that really helped just his existence and his, his messages really helped heal that religious wounding because, oh, it was the first church I had ever stepped into that, man, my body just relaxed. My nervous system just relaxed and said, yes, yes, the story of love this, this is what I know to be true. And I remember the very first time I walked in feeling, I mean, I hadn't even heard the sermon yet. And there was something where I felt at home. They allowed me to do a podcast event there a couple of weeks later, which was really beautiful. But the, the, um, the first few sermons, and we'll talk about that today. The first few sermons were isms. Uh, racism, ableism, sexism, uh, legalism, all the isms uh, that we create separation from. And I was hooked. And I've now been going for, I believe, like four or five years now. And I've developed a friendship with the pastor, Pastor Jason, and I've interviewed him on my previous podcast, having him on again today. He has his messages and his heart and his words to me have been such medicine to that wounding that I received from the church as a child. Uh, I think that you'll experience some of that today. A lot of what you'll hear us speak on in this episode is our curiosities and our questionings. And that's what I've loved about his church and about his messages is he allows it to be okay to question, to get curious and to doubt, which is something I really wasn't allowed to do in the past. And what I love as well about his messaging is it removes the shame and the fear and the story that God could ever leave you. 
it was incredibly healing for me. Last year was the year that I really focused on my religious wounding that I had carried. I had no idea how deep it was. And it's interesting that the year prior, I was so focused on healing my sensuality and my sexuality and my connection to my body, my connection to my pleasure, and that the religious wounding happened the next year. Because it was like, I had to go into all of those areas, my sensuality, my sexuality, my pleasure. And then I had to go into the religious wounding because I had to see that those areas were holy that I could find God there. And I couldn't do that until I healed the religious wounding that I had that said that those areas had to be separate. And uh, yeah, this man shares that message. He shares that same truth. So I'm so excited to share him with you today. He's breaking the mold when it comes to how to lead a congregation into love and healing instead of a place of fear and shame. And as a post-evangelical, he is replacing that common fear-based style of preaching with one of inclusivity, expansiveness, and a loving approach. He is highly accredited in his field, holding a Master's of Divinity from Northern Theological Seminary and having worked in church leadership for several years. However, his liberal views has caused turbulence along his path underlined by his termination from the Free Methodist Church in 2016 due to his opposed views of total inclusion of the LGBTQ community. Now a lead pastor at Austin New Church, he inspires new ways of thinking and loving. Please help me welcome Jason Morris to Untamed and Unashamed. Good to be here. Yeah, it's yeah. actually three years to the week that I interviewed you on the Magic Hour, which is no more. Yep. Yep, I um, that. Yeah, Untamed and Unashamed is my new baby. And it's way more me, mm. um, which is the version of me in the magic hour. We never really like you didn't really get to know mm. the the version of me that has hosted this show is the, the one that you have seen kind of blossom and yeah. open up. And uh, I I mean, on that last show, I was still very much confused. And, uh, I mean, I'm still confused about a lot of things, but mm -hmm. at that time I was still very much confused about a lot of the things that we discussed and, uh, sorting through my religious trauma yeah. that didn't actually really get, I mean, it all comes in layers, but that it came to its like peak of its healing last year. So I'm really excited mm -hmm. to embark fun. on this conversation again. Are you saying that we wouldn't have been able to have this conversation then? I like would, no, do you remember my response when you said revelation was a dream? Yeah. I almost couldn't end the show. I was oh. like, we need to go back. I need more information. I just remember thinking after that show that I, I think I just recorded my last podcast. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get fired. I now. remember you said that and it didn't happen. <laughs> no, it didn't happen. No. So I would love to start off with a little bit of your story because we sure. didn't do that last time. Right. Um, just on what led you to pastor and speak the way that you do because, mm. man, there's, I think I know one other pastor like you mm. in LA, I think at Agape Church. You should introduce me to that, to that pastor because I would love to know them. Yeah. I don't know his name by heart. I need to, I need <laughs> to look him up, but, yeah. um, and I'll bring him up again later because there's a quote of his that I want to sure. say to you, but I don't know many pastors like you and most pastors that I know, I don't feel like they, the, the pastor that I grew up with, um, in San Antonio, I don't feel like he knew the harm that he was doing. I really don't. Mm. I feel like he believed he was doing God's work. Yep. Um, 
And so I would love to hear the shift for you mm-hmm. of like feeling like you were doing God's work and, and waking up to mm. this is harming people. Yeah. So we both know who that pastor is. And I also think that it's generous. To, I agree with you. It's generous to say they probably think they're doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the damage is so deep. It's so, so deep. Complete. So just to tweet my story, I think I knew um, probably as an early teenager that I wanted to pastor. And I'm afraid if I got super honest about that reason, a lot of it had to do with, I had the skills to stand in front of a room and command a little bit of attention. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a teenager and you're sensing a call to ministry, I don't know how much you can divide between the pure motives and the nefarious motives, to be honest. I mean, when you're, when you're a, a young male realizing that it's going to be up to you to figure out where you fit in the world and you realize you have these sort of front of room gifts, it's pretty natural if you grew up in a pastor's home to sort of go that direction. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who followed that sort of vocational sensation and in the end it wasn't true. What has been true for me is that I, as I have schooled myself and walked for 25 years in this vocation, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that this is where I need to be. Now I had an early sort of a, an early, what's the word response to ministry that would have been very familiar to what you grew up in. Same stripe, same kind of tribe. It never worked for my body. It never felt safe. That kind of certainty never worked for my brain. And so I knew from a very young age that I want to be in ministry, but nothing like this. And so I've always known that, I think. Mm. So my journey then through different stop-offs along the way with ministry was really evaluating how am I feeling in my body around this gospel that's being preached. Yeah. And I just kept shifting and moving until it felt like I can fully unfold here. And that's the you that that's the me that you've experienced because mm-hmm. I've been a lot of places before we met. Yeah. yeah. So I've been here for 10 years and it seems like there's no limit to how we can stretch out on both sides to sort of figure out how do we claim a faith that works for our bodies and works for us. Mm-hmm. So that's the journey we're on. And there's no sense that we're anywhere like all the way there. There's no sense that um, we've, we've got the perfect setup or the perfect church. I mean, my, my working with the text is as much wonder as it is any other thing. So mm-hmm. disclaimer on the front end, I really don't know much about much. I just know <laughs> what I'm trying to do. So that's my, that's yeah. my disclaimer. Yeah. What was that transition like for you? Cause I know, and we did speak about this in the last uh, episode, like the first eight sermons I went to at the church was on the isms. Yeah. Yeah. That was a funny time. That was an interesting time for you to come in. Yeah. yeah. Sexism, legalism, fundamentalism, nationalism, biblical literalism, racism, uh, racism, ableism, ableism. That was, yeah. what, uh, what was, and I don't know how long you've mm-hmm. been speaking. Cause I mean, you didn't really pick up the Bible much in those ism sermons. Right. And I love that <laughs> because I do believe Busted. that the book white fragility is also the Bible. Like, why is that not also God's word? Right. Yeah. yeah. But what was the transition like for you where you made this bold move to start speaking? Mm. I mean, there's so many fears that can come up, I mm. think, in a pastor when they're going to speak differently, especially yeah. when they're standing up for LGBTQ rights and sure. things like that. I, I mean, I was taught not to do those things. I was yeah. taught not to speak anything but the text. I was taught to stay on that message. Uh, I guess um, it. F- so my work is constantly ho- hovers between what does the text say where's the gospel in the text, but more importantly, how do we embody that in the real world? And so, so much of where people get hung up on in the text, so Mm -hmm. much of the damage comes from places that 
that doesn't travel well across time because that's not the gospel. And so here's, here's the basic way I look at the text. Somewhere in there is the gospel that sets all things free. Mm-hmm. But not all of the Bible equals the gospel. Anybody would be a fool to think that that's the case. Somewhere in the text, there are the component parts to set all things free. Our job is to go into the text and find those things. Those things that don't set people free, slavery, sexism, um, arcane cultural things like, you know, gouge your eye out if it causes you to sin or stone your child if they show disrespect. Those things we are free to leave in the ancient space Mm -hmm. because what we're bringing across time is the gospel. I understand how that makes people uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but the reality is, is everyone does that. They do. Everyone does that. They just aren't honest about it. So even the super, super conservative biblical literalists don't make their, well, mostly don't make their wives put doilies on their heads just because Paul says that at one place in at the church in Corinth. Yeah. So the work is to find the gospel within the text and bring the gospel across the ages, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can slide into that kind of space, then now you're, you're able to evaluate what sets people free. Mm-hmm. For example, with the gay community, the queer community, the LGBTQ community, however you want to talk about that. There are no more than six texts in, the, in, you know, different texts in the Bible that even mention that situation. Four of those six aren't even talking about what we're talking about. And so we have to reconcile with two basic New Testament texts where Paul condemns a certain kind of lifestyle that we don't even know what he described. It, that word wasn't homosexual to the 1940s no. in English. Yeah. So in that cultural sort of description that he's giving and how the community functions, if that thing does not set all people free, then that doesn't come across the ages for me. Mm-hmm. So it's that simple. So imagine now what the text can be. The text can be this container in which we find a gospel that sets all things free, people, including living things, including the earth itself. And if it doesn't, our work is to figure out what does. Yeah. So that's how I get here. And that always made sense to me. It took me a while. I had to travel like Odysseus through a few alternative selves to get to the place where I'm like, either it's freeing for all people or I'm not about it. Mm. That's where I am today. Yeah. With the, with the homosexuality, I know it wasn't in the English language till the forties and it wasn't put in the Bible until then. And also uh, what I was taught was that the original meaning Mm -hmm. in the Bible, when it's referencing homosexuality, it was actually talking about pedophilia. In Um, some cases. Yes. In, for example, in the case uh, in the old Testament case of Sodom and Gomorrah, mm -hmm. these are not gay men looking to have sex with angels. This is sex as power over a foreigner. Right. And so when Jesus characterizes the sin of Sodom, he mentions nothing about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. That word is never locatable in the mouth of Jesus. He references their inhospitable response to foreigners, which that should impact our immigration policy more than our views of gay people. This is not what we now think that that was just because it became important in the early 19th century to say the church stands against this alternative lifestyle. It's not in the text. Mm -hmm. Paul references two different categories of people. We don't know what he means. One of them is the word arsenikoitai, one is malakoi. We don't know what that means. And it wasn't the blanket term homosexual until 1946. Mm -hmm. And it still isn't in the German and French versions of the same text. So Mm -hmm. yeah, anytime you go into a text and you pull up something that plays in the world around you as hatred and bigotry, you've not got the gospel. Go back down in the text. Yeah. Simple as pie. So I'm not, I'm not willing to look at the gay community and say, you are uniquely deserving of our disdain because of some ancient texts on sexuality. How, why would we do that? What did we understand about the continuum of sexuality, human sexuality in the, you know, 3000 years ago? What honestly did we understand? Yeah. We didn't even know that women contributed genetic material to the birth of a new child. Nobody even knew that. That was not a thing. So 
my, my point is let's look forward. Let's, let's let the gospel speak to our current context. And it gives me enormous freedom to do things like an eight week series on the hardest things we never hear mentioned in church. That was the yeah. isms that's been now three or four years. Yeah. I think what comes up for me when I hear you say like free, the it being freedom for all is that like my religious conditioning and even the way I was raised mm-hmm. is no, it's yeah. not freedom for all. It's only freedom for those who choose this way, yeah. you know, and that's, that's the Bible's truth. That's what it's saying. And so there's still that, like, I can hear that argument in, sure. my, in my own parents' voice. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting know? about that though, is that in order to get to the place where you say the gospel only sets free the people you know, believers or Christians who live a certain way, you've just overread the text where Paul says it's for freedom that you're set free. And that's for all people. Mm-hmm. We're just closing our eyes to that one then. So here's what we do. We take an ancient text and we use it to fortify our sense of what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm arguing is if that's what we're doing with the text, then someone always loses and someone wins. My guess is you win, you know, we win and everybody else loses. Mm-hmm. And I think we've misplaced the entire thing. I don't think that's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at Jesus's early teaching mechanism. He's, he opened his teaching ministry by saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus himself was innovating on what people thought was accepted truth. Why would we not be doing the same? Yeah. Yeah. And that just gives us freedom, freedom to, to figure out what sets actually sets people free, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tr- and like true freedom. There's so much pseudo freedom as well. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you, I think that we, I brought up like in the last episode, you mentioned that revelation was a dream and it was so, Actually, let me just upscale that. I think it was a total hallucination. Like, I think so like too. One, one thing is a dream. Another thing is like strung out on something weird. Yeah. It was, it is a fantastical trip, right? Anyway. Yeah. So but that was mind boggling for me to hear at that time, three or four years ago. And you recently, um, (laughs) here we go. (laughs) You recently shared on stage that you don't actually believe in hell. Don't believe in hell. I was taught that's for darn sure. Yeah. And well, that's the pseudo freedom though, is, is, uh, being guaranteed heaven. Mm. Right. Um, Mm. which for, for me, like, living on a promise of heaven to me is almost like living in hell. Mm. And well, because what it, what it creates is this constant obsession about every little thing you do and say, and is it going to affect where you go? The way you may have heard it growing up, the way I heard it growing up was, are you sure that if you got hit by a bus tonight and your life ended, are you sure you'd go to heaven? Mm -hmm. Think of the trauma that builds into the the minds of young people because you're constantly that would be like saying, you are a child of this home. As long as you don't do these things, if you do, you're gone. You're not our child. Like you live on the, on the razor's edge. I think all of the teachings about hell and heaven that we inherited come from multiple generations of people who were very nervous about the sexual revolution, the scientific revolution, the, the modern age and the explosion of information. And so what happens is when, when things begin to accelerate, the church locks down to try to fight against the flow, the social movement, right? Consequently, it's never won that battle, and yet it still fights it. But heaven and hell functioned for me growing up as these big scare taxes. It's the carrot and the stick. You get the carrot if you do all these things. You get the stick if you don't. Mm -hmm. We don't even know in the text what they're referring to. There's six different concepts in the New Testament. There's Sheol, there's Hades, there's Gehenna, there's like a fire. There's simply destruction. There's 
eternal suffering. What are we talking about? We compress it into one 20th century American concept and we say, eternal conscious bodily torture or punishment. Where does that come from? That comes from Dante. There's so much fear in the body just hearing it. Well, that's the design, see? Right. That's the design. That faith was designed to convert our heads. Our bodies were the problem. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we're splintered selves and we live in hell. Mm -hmm. If you have to define hell, it has to be something a little more like that. The way that it feels like when when Jesus actually talks about it is that like um, heaven and hell are on earth, basically. And it's um, when you forget your connection to God almost. Mm -hmm when you make God outside of yourself, it's like, mm-hmm. that is living in hell. It feels like. Yeah. Well, you and I discussed in the previous conversation, sin is essentially believing in the mythology of distance from God. Mm-hmm. So hell, if you have to distill it down to something, if we really must distill it down to something has to be something along the lines of separation from the awareness that God is in all things and is ever present to all things. Yeah. And I think, um, the conversation that we had about that was that like, I had always, for some reason, really resonated with Eve, mm. which was like a scary thing as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Cause she was the bad person, right? She seduces the man. That's right. Right. Um, well, that's convenient to bolster your patriarchy. You're, you're gasping, dying patriarchy. The very first story of the woman, <laughs> right? She seduces the man to sin. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and it fed into my wound from the church too. Yeah. Um, when I was cast out of, of that first community and, and sense of tribe. But what really, it was so interesting that I always really resonated with this Eve story. I didn't mm. even call it a wound. And then uh, our friend, Stan, spoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's actually come to speak again I'm on so Sunday. Excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, he spoke about how mm. really, um, it was like when it hit me, like, oh, that's the Eve wound. It was like, the reason why Eve bit the apple is because she was convinced that she needed it. Mm-hmm. Like she was convinced that God was outside of her and she needed the apple in order to access yeah. Yeah. that. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was when it hit me like, Oh, like I've, the church has convinced the church had convinced me mm-hmm. that there was that separation that yeah. I actually needed the apple. Like it was almost like the church was the serpent in that story for me. Whoa. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- you have to create a market if you have a product and if you have the product of reconciliation to God through access to all these products that we offer, then you've got to create the market that says you're separate from God. Mm-hmm. But if we were separate from God, then how do we even articulate how Jesus approached humanity? Like if, if our sin meant that there was this firewall that God could not cross, which is a component of theology coming out of the Middle Ages. I still know people who believe that. If God literally cannot look on sin, and I know the text that they're using to say that, if God cannot make an approach to a wayward creation, assuming it's wayward, then why did God do that? Mm-hmm. Right? So, so none of, the, the mythology that needs to die is the mythology of distance itself. Mm-hmm. That's what Stan would say, or Stan has said, shame is the isolating factor, not sin. Shame is what it's, it's the hiding in response to looking outside ourselves for for fulfillment. Mm -hmm. That's what needs to be reconciled through love. Mm -hmm. Not this eternally, this eternally permanent feature of sinfulness based on being what born. Come on guys. How silly. Listen, our kids aren't buying that stuff. We ought to know better. Like that doesn't, that doesn't pass what we call the fish test. If it smells like fish, y'all it's fish, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. My teaching, kids don't yeah, buy it. No, they, they're like, they. that's muggle stuff. Yeah. Nor should they. <laughs> and guess what? To the, just to the, to the great disappointment of our parents, I didn't buy their, their worldview either. That said, I once asked my dad to give me math on paper. How many people are going to be burning forever in hell? And he eventually landed on something north of like 98% of everyone ever born is going to burn forever in hell. And I asked him, I was a child, I asked him, how does that make God loving? And he said, it doesn't matter. It makes God just. Yeah. And I, that's the moment that's I thought, I don't want anything life. to do with that God. And you, like, I love, you said shame. Like, <laughs> I love your, you spoke on baptism. Yeah. And it was like, you said something about like, when you come out of that water, you're not washing away your sins. You're leaving mm -hmm. behind your shame. That's exactly right. That was really beautiful. That's exactly right. Baptism is not the moment where God forgives us. Baptism is this public convocation where people come to witness what God spoke over Christ when he was baptized, which was, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased. That doesn't begin at the waters of baptism, mm -hmm. but it's important to convene those who love you so they can hear it again and you can hear it again that you're not being cleansed. You're being reminded of your cleansing. It's part of our weekly liturgy of confession at AMC. It's not, we're not, we're not confessing our sins unto forgiveness. We're confessing our shame and our distance because we've been cleansed and we need to be reminded of that. It's a work of being reminded. Yeah. yeah. Um, closing out the Adam and Eve story. I actually don't believe, I don't know if you feel differently. I don't believe that the Adam and Eve story happened. I believe it was a metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, and I, feel that way about most of the Bible. <laughs> so, so, so all you have to do is grab a good Jewish rabbi. That's their text. Mm -hmm. Genesis is not eyewitness account. That's a scandalous idea. Ask the rabbi, ask Rabbi Neil here in central Austin, how does Genesis function in, in the Jewish community? He would say, absolutely. It's poetry and metaphor. Yeah. I, I don't it know. Like. It didn't become anything more than that until we cleared the room of all the Jews in the fourth century and said, this was the little literal word of God. We took someone else's sacred text. We appropriated it and said, all of it now points to Jesus and it's all literal. Mm -hmm. That's Ooh, literal. That's the beginning of where Christianity became empire. Mm -hmm. See, Christianity can't become empire unless we completely cut its power away. That was always metaphor. That was always poetry. So I almost insist now that people say, you mean the Genesis poem? <laughs> Listen, who yeah. wrote it down if there's only two people here? Come on, let's be honest. Also, there's two completely different stories of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. I don't know if you've noticed. One of them, God creates man and then becomes aware of loneliness and then puts man to sleep and creates woman out of his rib. That's one story. The other one is God created male and female in the garden. Well, which one is it? Biblical <laughs> literalists, which one is it? Yeah. It was never intended to be that. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. Not so much of the, of the how and the when of creation. It's a beautiful story of the why and the who. Mm -hmm. Of a God who walked in the cool of the day with all of the things that, that God created. That's the content. That's the poetic metaphorical yeah. content of Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then to close out the talk on hell, have you heard of Final Exit? Have I asked you this? No. What's this? Uh, so I was an actress in it. Uh, oh, it's a movie. No. It's a mock haunted house. Oh, wow. It happened, I mean, when I was in my teen years, it was every October we would put on, in San Antonio, we would put on this like mock haunted house where like 
room one. This is like, yeah, oh yeah. my God, I'm so <laughs> frustrated even speaking this right now because I don't know these people's trauma who were coming in here and I was a part of this. Right. I've forgiven complicity. myself. <laughs> this is complicity right here. Like one room was a suicide. One room was an abortion. One room was oh. a school shooting. One room was a father beating his family. And then, and there's like six or seven rooms of sin, right? Yeah. Sinful lives. And then you go into hell and I was one of the demons that grabs your legs. Of course. <laughs> I love that for you. At least you had a fun part. <laughs> oh, oh the makeup was exhausting. Ugh. So, um, but it's a terrifying scene. And by yeah. the time people had made it to the hell, you'd seen an abortion, a school shooting, a suicide, like you're mm. like pretty shaken up. And then basically the story is that's where this leads you. You go through yeah. hell and it's Jesus on a cross, all bloody. And my wonderful adopted father that I loved so much who I do not feel knew what he I do feel that he was trying to save these souls and yep. I love him so much uh would then give a message do you choose that or do you choose this this, bloody, this, what, this is what life on a bloody cross that yeah. has <laughs> done this in order yeah. to save you from that yeah. and we would Every night at like 2 a.m., because we started at like 6, yeah. 2 a.m., we'd be like, 500 souls said the sinner's prayer. Yeah. But they were freaking scared. Yeah. And that's how I gave my, that's how I said the sinner's prayer, out of fear. Mm-hmm. And um, I, yeah. I mean, I remember like one time we didn't get the building one year. We didn't get the building for final exit. And they were like, everyone has to fast. It's a forced fast for the next until we get, yes, until we get the building. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was so intense every year because it was like, it meant thousands of souls would be saved from this hell. And I, I mean, I was a big Charles Spurgeon girl. Of course. Um, I mean, I carried my Bible in high school. Like I was so set to save people from hell. I mean, because I believed it was eternal damnation where maggots ate your skin and you were eternally burning. And I was, well, wait, the maggots can't eat your skin if you're going to be eternally there. So that doesn't really work either, but I get it. I I get it. I get it. But I was terrified of it. Of course. And then it was so interesting that I continued to believe it. Even mm-hmm. like having my mentor Shadyak, who was like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. But still it functions, right? It was so ingrained in my body. Mm. And, uh, even like living in the Playboy Mansion, it was like, I hope Jesus doesn't come back anytime soon, you know? Like, <laughs> and then it wasn't until like you spoke on Revelation yeah. being a dream that I started to kind of like think about it. And I started mm-hmm. to, like we were talking about before we hit record, like I started to just ask my body yeah. and everything in my body said, no, like mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that I is just wanna, not the Christ. I, so I understand where all those ideas come from. I get where they culturally have their roots. I get why people scare people into behavior. But when was that ever the gospel? When was that ever the gospel? If you walk, if you watch how Jesus walked around, the people that he frightened were the people who were doing that to the people. It wasn't the broken people. Mm. Get my point. So mm-hmm. if Jesus showed up at your little hell house or your last exit, whatever you call it, we had something similar at North called Hell House. It was this thing you take your youth group to to scare them into heaven, whatever. If Jesus were to show up there, my guess is he'd be preaching harder against the people putting the event on than the people trying to be scared because it's it's the institutions that produce fear, that produce compliance, that consistently receive the scorn of Jesus' teaching. It's never the broken people. It's never the struggling people. Mm-hmm. We should have known better, but I do understand where that comes from culturally, and I identify with that too. I remember... Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of the sinner's prayer is really a manipulative thing to say. If you say yes to me, then I get to feel really good that I saved your soul. Listen, salvation doesn't work that way. 
you didn't, you may have responded in one moment. Your initial response was to say yes and go to an altar, do whatever. But Jade, it's been a life of decisions to stay in this game, right? Am I right? Mm -hmm. So health functions, it works. Fear works. Fear drives politics. It still does. Fear drives anywhere you want to move a crowd. You can move them with fear. But fear is the opposite of what the gospel does, which is set people free. And so it's time to just say that and name that. Yeah. What do you say? Like, I remember a partner, a past partner saying like we, our first like real big fight where I was like, we're not going to make it mm-hmm. over heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying, well, at least if I'm wrong, like at least, at least if I'm wrong, like, or at least if you're wrong, something like my, my soul's safe. It was like that story of like, at least I'm safe because even if I'm wrong, whether I'm right or wrong, like, do you get what I'm saying? I do. I'm having a hard time remembering how he worded it. I do. I think I might know this person. Um, (laughs) Probably. um, He didn't like you very much. No, he didn't. I still remember the first time I saw him, I thought, this is weird. Yeah. His energy never matched your energy. No. And it's again, sending him love. I'm so glad you you repositioned in the universe because you're in such a better place. Well, and the thing that you told me at the ending of that relationship that was really healing for me was... Um, don't choose, it was an invitation, it was a mm-hmm. command, but like, don't choose another person that is suspicious of your curiosity because people yeah. are so curious. Yeah. Listen, Walter Brueggemann said a hundred years ago, curiosity is the mark of a true disciple, not certainty, not certainty. Mm. Curiosity, the constant yearning to disassemble and rearm and reassemble to know in a new way. That's what makes good discipleship. Mm. A good disciple dies curious, not certain. That's just the bottom line. But yeah. So what, what people crave about certainty is that they can I think what they crave about certainty is that they can say, I've done all the things, which means now I'm all good and I feel safe. And I do not disdain people. I do not hate people for wanting to feel safe, but you don't get there by reorganizing a tribe in such a way that you're all in and everyone else is all out. We've misunderstood Jesus. If we end up doing that with anything, Mm -hmm. if Jesus taught us anything, it's that in is not in and out is not out that up is down and down is up. Like, like there's no in and out, right? Mm -hmm. What's, what's to be in on. Right. So Mm -hmm. yeah, but it it is a lot of, it is relatively um, disconcerting to be untethered from those certainties. I've lost all my friends. I've Mm -hmm. lost most of my family at least once or twice in my life. Yeah. But the truth is, is if you're in the work of, of helping people find ways to grow and get free, you're never going to get there by scaring them with hell or offering them this dangling carrot of heaven that none of us can even describe. Mm-hmm. If it's a universal truth that when people die, they go to one place or the other, why do we not know some more details about this? Yeah. Like we're making it up literally from a few places in an ancient text. Mm-hmm. What else in our life do we, do we let an ancient text be the boundaries of curiosity? We don't do that scientifically. We know the earth is not the center of the universe. We know the sun uh, uh, it doesn't go around us, for example, all of these different things. We know life is not just in the blood. We know all of these different things in the ancient world, they had their perspective and they wrote it down and we will do the same. But if we can't continue to follow curiosity as knowledge and exposure and awareness sort of develops, then I guess we're just trying to all go back into ancient times. Well, that that's a cult and I don't want to do that. And I think, I think a fair way to describe a lot of what we grew up in, Jade was a cult. Yeah. It was focused on controlling like our that. bodies, controlling our minds. And we were taught not to ask questions. It didn't work for you and it didn't work for me. Mm-mm. I'm no, so glad I was it didn't. not allowed to ask questions. That's right. Because when you ask questions now, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a doubter. 
yeah. in that sin. Yeah. You should be ashamed of asking questions. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I don't, so I do not accept hell as it was taught to me. Um, I think what seems to feel hellish to me are the things we do to one another. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And heaven as some out of the cosmos place that we go. I don't believe in that. I believe the cosmos is a closed loop. I believe life is eternal. I think, I, I think all things reconstitute. I like how Ezekiel described the new creation. Mm. To Ezekiel, a very ancient prophet, there was no other realm. It was living in peace on earth. If you look at Jesus, he doesn't talk about heaven. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. And it, it, it wasn't even the word kingdom in Aramaic. That word didn't exist. Yeah. He talked about a realm in which all people had access. Well, that's here. Jesus had very little to say to bolster our views of heaven and hell as they were taught to us. It took the Middle Ages. It took pestilence, disease. It took the scientific and modern revolution. All of those things produced context in which we took this ancient text and said, now y'all should be scared to death. You should live this way because if you don't, you're going to burn in here forever. Mm -hmm. Jesus never talks about eternal, any, any kind of eternal punishment. He just doesn't. Hearing you say that, it's actually really nice. I know very few people now who believe in hell. They don't functionally, do they? Isn't it interesting how how much has changed? And I'm curious to like, I think I texted you this, but that pastor from Agape says that the actual, like the, the original translation and meaning of devil was, um, was, uh, mm-hmm. something thought like, um, yeah. Oh, I was hoping you'd bring this up. I was literally driving up here hoping you'd bring this up. What was it? Something thought like, get ye behind me. What was it? I don't know what, the, I don't remember that text. I don't remember what that pastor says, but I can tell you that the, the, the spirit of accusation that accuses us against the narrative of love, the love of God in the world, that's, that's the Satan in the world. And that lives inside each of us. So I can understand how ancients would say, I can't locate evil in me. I'm going to make evil my neighbor. I'm going to make evil this, this prototype of all things dark. I'm going to make him, he's going to have a split tail. He'll be red. He'll look like, you know, whatever. This building of a devil, this building of a Satan in order to externalize the, the onus of that evil is a way of saying, I can't face it in me. I'm going to make it a player in the play. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with evil is that it resides in all of us. The voice of accusation lives in you and lives in me. Mm-hmm. So any thought you feed enough to where it takes on a life of its own becomes a demon, if that's what you need to call it, becomes an angel, if that's what you want to call it. I heard Dallas Willard say this 25 years ago. Someone asked, he's a theologian from Southern California, you may not know. Uh, someone asked, what is, a, what is a, a demon? He says, well, it's any thought you feed long enough till it takes on a life of its own that runs counter to the freedom of God in the world. It blew my mind. At that point, I wasn't ready for that. But I think that's right. If it doesn't live inside, then it has no power over us. So it's not this external thing. There isn't. Guys, it's exactly what it was. It was crazy thought. Get E behind me, crazy thought. That's right. Yeah. It was like the original, supposedly. Or get the behind me disordered narrative mm-hmm. that runs counter to the way the world actually works. Mm-hmm. You feed that idea long enough, you have yourself a little Satan, if you need to call it that. But this is not an omni. It, it's just, it's just exactly like the ancient world to create poles of, of gods and devils and good and bad. And everything's a polarity. Everything's a dualism. Of course, that's how they conceived of it. How could they not have? Mm-hmm. And that's, we don't have to stay there. And one thing I do, not one thing, one of the many things that I love about Tantra is that, uh, that goes with this, like get you behind me crazy thought. And 
is that like, and that that crazy thought is the demon that's being fed is that, um, even God is in that demon. Like the demons are there in protection of like Hmm. your, like your castle, basically the, like, Mm -hmm. like, so if you have this crazy thought, if you have this like fed demon inside you, it is ultimately trying to keep you safe from something. So Mm. it's going in and asking, like facing your demon and saying like, Hey, who are you trying to protect? Mm -hmm. What are you trying to protect? And having a conversation, giving it a seat at the table, because Mm. if you're just in fear of it and you're at war with it, not only Mm. are you fragmented, that's the thing, but you're at war with yourself. That's the point. And with your thoughts. What you just said just kind of swerved into internal family systems theory, which is that when you, when exiled and stuck energy inside you is stigmatized and labeled as evil. Now you live a splintered life. Mm -hmm. Those things are there for a reason for your protection. They're speaking for a reason. And if you choose to make them the devil or evil, then, then good luck because now you've got all these multiple pieces that make up your full reality and you hate half of them. Well, that's exactly how I would describe most religious people I know. They're completely splintered. They're angry. They're broken inside and somehow love is not recreating well, them. It's just, they're just, this is my tribe. This, these people are out. They're going to hell. You want to make a Christian mad, tell them that the people that they don't like may not be in hell. And you want to see demons, they'll come flying out of the face of your Christian neighbors because how dare you say they're not going to burn in hell? What does that tell you about the gospel? I don't think they've even begun to, to let it convert them. <laughs> I mean, and it makes sense that that is the state that they, that um, this religious dogma feeds is because if we believe in a God that would abandon us, mm. if we believe in a God that can't hear our prayers if we have sinned or can't look at us if we're not perfect right then of course we're going to do it to ourselves if Mm -hmm. god would do it to us of course we'll do it to us and so we're constantly abandoning ourselves we're constantly uh seeing ourselves as other not good enough can't hear our our own selves like can't face our own demons so it's like it is a story it is like a foundation of abandonment fragmentation like um Yeah. All these things only come into play when we look at our interior worlds as isolated and separate from the exterior world. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening is whatever's going on inside us, we project that out. And so we build three tiered versions of the universe where God lives above and the devil lives below. And we're in the middle trying to sort it out. We do this in the external world because we don't understand how to reconcile that with this. But I think the mystics would say uh, going down inside is the only real journey. Like the only thing that really is real is what we can experience on the inside. So God is just language unless we find God inside, right? Mm-hmm. The spiritual journey is not to go out into the world and find God. The spiritual journey is to, is to find God inside. Mm-hmm. And I would argue, and no one's ever talked to me out of it, that all of it is made of the life of God. So if we create yeah, demons so and devils, that's right. If we create devil, demons and devils and all these different things, we still have to reconcile for the fact that all things exist in the life of God and we haven't really moved the needle. So I know nothing about Tantra, but I'll believe you on that because I know you do. Yeah. So the, the voice that I can hear from someone listening that is maybe does firmly believe in devil and hell is like, wow, he's got them right where he wants them. Like, yeah. We've been deceived. Right? <laughs> that's fine. He's that's one. fine. <laughs> oh, that's digging up. You know, those old voices don't even come back. When you bring it up, I'm like, oh, that's true. I just have, I have so far beyond 
living in fear of where I'm going to spend eternity based on those old ideas. It doesn't even occur to me. Well, and it just goes back to the body. Like my body says no. So that's a no for me. But I think, um, I think that, you know, one of the voices too, that isn't even so much religious. It's like, even in the spiritual community that I often hear is like, well, how do you not believe in a devil and in demons when there's sex trafficking and mm. pedophilia and all that's hell in the real world, isn't it? I'm not saying I don't believe that they're suffering. Mm-hmm. So the mystics would dial in more the concept of suffering without speaking specifically on an afterlife because, you know, the mystics cross all traditions. There's mystical traditions of all major ways of looking at the world. And of course the mystic tradition, mystical tradition focuses on the points of convergence. And I think that point, comes down to in some simple form or another that we're all connected. We're all in that working of the same life. Right. So it, but to find the freedom to distill the mysticism out of our text, it does take a whole lot of work of letting things go and releasing things that bring condemnation and fear and judgment and finding the things that bring life. I think our bodies are easier to follow in that work than our minds, to be honest. Mm-hmm. They really are. Because I think if if it doesn't pass the basic body peace test, then, it, then don't try to tell me it's loving if I know in my body it's unsafe. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I mean, I get how that sounds dangerous to folks. I get it. If yeah. you need to be in a tribe that feels certain about the afterlife, go for it. But, but they're not. They, they're not. Like... They build huge things out of tiny bits of data. And I just think that those need to, we need to ask some questions of those things. Yeah. And I think when it comes to those areas, sex trafficking, pedophilia, all of it, it's a fallen sexuality and we have a fallen sexuality still because of that foundation of fragmentation Mm -hmm. and of um, uh, forgetting that God yeah, is our true nature. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it still goes down to the same thing that, that we're saying, but the, yeah. um, that makes me want to bring up as well, purity culture oh boy. Um, that we were both very much. Raised <laughs> in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you, I know some of your story, you know, some of mine. Um, yeah. but I know that on, you know, I went to a church where they basically, uh, chose my husband for me. I could have said no, but then I'd be walking. I'd be cast out from my really my community, my tribe. So right. yeah, this man, he was a good man. Like yeah, yeah. it was a good choice. Yeah. And so, um, but I remember like they they had this like teaching that outside of marriage, like lust and pleasure and sexual desire were demonic. Sure. So we would do these deliverances where they would cast these demons out of you. <laughs> and if you have those thoughts again, they will bring back seven friends and they will torment you because that's what they said. The Bible said they, they, they use fear, that scripture. Fear, 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 right. fear. How'd that work out? I was afraid <laughs> to sleep with my door closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And on my wedding night, I had purged myself and so did he of all pleasure, pleasurable thoughts and access to pleasure and desire. And it was like this, like, that's, that's what we're supposed to wait for. Yeah. No, no negativity on him. Like he felt it too. I, I know. Yeah, yeah. It didn't set us up for success did it. No. Because it, because it, it, what it does is it puts on the line God's pleasure in you or God's approval of you based on what you do with your body. Mm-hmm. And it tells you that the love of God is at risk. If you don't do this very austere thing with your body, that isn't biologically natural. 
It's not evolutionarily probable. And so we splinter and break and crush ourselves. Then we get, and I did the same journey. You get to your marriage bed after your alcohol-free reception in a church in a seven-hour sermon, you know, all the deal. You get there and you don't have a living clue what to do next, except that you've always been told, don't worry about it. It'll be amazing. What other thing in our lives do we prepare for that way? Like, right. that, that would be saying, I'm going to be a lawyer. So I'm going to spend 10 years not thinking about law. And I'm going to go out there and it's just going to come to me. Are you kidding? Like, so I doubt it converted many people. It scared a lot of people. And a lot of people live in constant bodily disassociation. And they never figure out how to bring their body back into the work of the gospel. And it's one of the great damages of our generation, I think, to teach, you know, but it was a response to the sexual revolution where the church lost control. Mm. So they over respond by controlling everything we do and think, and you're never going to control the human spirit. It doesn't fit inside institutions. And I don't think it's, I don't think it was the message of Jesus. So were those scriptures around sexuality and what many churches would use to fuel purity culture, were those also added in later or were they just taken too literal? Or? No, no, they were mostly written by a single man, Paul, who says, don't get married because Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. So if you must, if you're on fire, if you're burning on fire, get married. But I, Paul literally says, I would rather none of you get married. So are we going to take his take and make that our sexual ethic? I think we should, I think we can do better. Mm. Now, I'm taking liberties with Paul. Some people, Paul is essentially the untouchable. I get it. He wrote many, many things. He worked out lots of things in our favor. And he gave us a lot that we can keep. But a single man who tells people not to get married, I value their opinion on sexuality a little less than mm -hmm. maybe others do. I mean, my <laughs> views on sexuality are very radical. I do believe that Jesus had sex. Um, I believe that it's how he rose from the dead. That's in your major, not in my major. Yeah, my major yeah. didn't teach me that, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you at least in the fact that of course history would, would squelch any sense of Jesus's sexuality. Well, because for me, well, yeah. And then it also fuels the story of um, the Virgin Mary, like sure. it makes sex bad. There's so many narratives here, but for me, if, if you can actually find spirituality in your sexuality, merge the two instead of separate them. Like all of these stories of separation, mm -hmm. if you can find God in your sex and enlightenment in your sex, mm -hmm. that is extremely liberating and empowering. Mm -hmm. And those, if you are liberated and empowered, it's harder to be controlled. That's right. And so of course that's going to become the most taboo. Mm -hmm. um, all the most powerful things become the most taboo. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it was my most healing journey was not only healing my sexuality, but then it becoming holy. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's why I love to teach, yeah. uh, on sexuality is because it's really where we have the most shame. Absolutely. Stan yeah. says we keep up, we hold our shame in our genitals. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what Stan Mitchell says. But yes, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You're far more expert in that field than I am. I'm a product of purity culture and the, the bottom out of what that could never teach. I don't really know how to lead a community into the post purity culture world, but I will not articulate the tenets of purity culture. I will not add shame to the body. I will not, I do not expect my daughters to live their lives in that sort of way. I think it's preposterous. It's cultic, it's controlling. And I, I want nothing. I want nothing to do with it. Now, does that mean I know exactly where to go next? Man, I don't, I just don't. 
but we're, if it's, if it's cloaked in shame and condemnation, I know that in my body to not be the gospel. Mm-hmm. And of course, the most powerful things that the church can't control, it's going to condemn. Mm-hmm. That's how we end up with witches. And how we end up with shame on this and shame on that. And you do realize for most of church doctrine, sex was only looked at as necessary for procreation. Mm-hmm. Is there anything more antithetical to the nature of who we are than that? And the church for centuries held to that view. Well, come on, guys. There's so many things from the ancient world that we don't bring yeah. in, into, into the way we live our lives. And so I think things that set people free are worth, are worth sitting with and pursuing. And I know that sounds kind of willy-nilly. It sounds a little wheels off. I get it. We, I have to speak carefully on the subject matter because I'm not an expert on it. I don't know. But what I can tell you is purity culture buried me in shame and mm-hmm. did not set me up for lifelong happiness. It didn't. No. Well, it's, it's more fragmentation. We're disconnected from our own bodies. We're disconnected from our own pleasure. And if we're disconnected from our pleasure, there's, that's also seated in unworthiness Yeah. because we're not worthy of our own pleasure. You know what I mean? Like there's so much there. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big subject. I know. I need to do a lot more reading on that. Well, I've got the book, uh, the book list for you. There you go. Um, okay. So you said one time, Jesus was a warrior in my youth and a mystic in my, I think yeah. you said old age, but you're not fucking old. So. I'm old. <laughs> I'm old. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think what I need, what a young, what a young adolescent male needed, who was disempowered, who was out, who had no control, who lived in a restrictive Christian space in a broken home with a controlling stepfather. What I needed was Jesus to be a conqueror. Jesus had muscles. He looked like He-Man with a beard, right? And and part of my development cleaved to that image of Jesus. But that runs its course. And when you realize um, that's not a valid way of being a man in the world anymore for me, mm-hmm. not with five daughters and, you know, the life that I live. Jesus, to me, is my favorite of the mystics. And I get some heat from this. Some people don't like this. But the mystics across all traditions taught us about convergence. What are the things that make us one? What are the commonalities across, across the ages, across disciplines, across ideologies? To me, Jesus is my favorite and my most well-studied of the mystics, but I can hear them all. I appreciate them all. I can value all of their sacred texts. My lifetime has been spent digging in this particular text. And mm-hmm. as far as I have come, I am not yet to the bottom of the power of Jesus as, as a mystic, meaning he's going to constantly dissolve things that, that make us different. And he's going to remind us how all things are one. And I think that's a good container for most of his teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's where I'm at. But I mean, there's a lot of books. I'm not, this, none of this is original thought. I mean, Andrew Harvey, who I'm going to go study in India with, I, I believe his book is titled the path, the mystic path to Christ. Yeah. Um, and it's, a beautiful. I think you'll find it's that basically a Rumi approach to to Jesus. It's really Listen, beautiful. any faith that makes us not look at Rumi and value what Rumi wrote, I don't want anymore. Any faith that looks at Rumi and says, "Oh, that's all craziness because it's not Christian," come on, folks, read him again. You get my point. Yeah. The great mystics of all traditions and all times are essentially saying the same thing. They're whispering to us, "All is one, and one is all." Mm-hmm. Well, that's one thing that I, I was really healing for me as well as I started to study the feminine, the female goddesses of mm-hmm. Hindu mysticism. Yeah. And I started to get a little scared because mm. my old religious programming came up and I was like, can I chant? Should mm. I, is it? And 
I messaged you about it and you were like, any wholehearted pursuit, you said they're all the same and Mm -hmm. any wholehearted pursuit will lead you home. That's right. The caveat being wholehearted. Wholehearted. Mm -hmm. And I said, I only know wholehearted. And you said, I know. (laughs) That's (laughs) That's why why I'm not worried about you. (laughs) That's exactly what I said. That's why I'm not concerned at all where you need to go next because wholehearted pursuit takes you all the way home. Here's the secret of the cosmos. It's already home. (laughs) It's all home. Yeah. And as we pursue our alternative routes home, you can live in fear of where someone seeks next or you can understand we're working through alternative narratives that want to tell us that we are not made of love, but we will all in the end understand this. Mm -hmm. It's already home and we're all headed home. And I just want to be alive in a world that allows me to not be afraid of everything or angry at everything. I want to be alive in a world that says my path is this one to wholeheartedness. And I, wholeheartedly trust that others are on the same path. Yeah. It doesn't sound that complicated. I think what I really wanted to step into last year when I focused the whole year on my religious wounding mm-hmm. was getting to a place where I'm also, because the whole pain point of our religious wounding was this rapture ideology where we are placing others on the outside or othering. Mm-hmm. And I realized that now I was doing the same thing to those who wounded me. Like mm-hmm. I'm placing those, those with rapture ideology or those that I felt like were dogmatic, those who condemned another, I was placing them on the outside, which mm-hmm. meant I was now You're condemning them. Mm-hmm. And so what I really aimed to do is like through the religious uh, wounding was like, well, first of all, my, my teacher asked me like, how can you be on a deserted island with fundamental Christianity and make peace with it? Mm. And like my first, she was like, that's your priestess initiation right now. Wow. And, I, and my first reaction was like, I build a fucking canoe yeah. and get the hell out of there. <laughs> or build a mallet and crush them. Yeah. But I yeah. didn't. I yeah. did. I stayed on that deserted island. I didn't yeah. leave that yeah. situation that I was in that was so triggering for me until I made peace and I wasn't triggered mm-hmm. by all of the things that felt dogmatic to me. And, um, that's, that was my, that was my goal was to be able to not other them, Mm. to not just place them on the outside and say, you're you're doing what they're doing, you know, and, um, also trusting that that may be the best foundation Mm -hmm. for them. Just like this is Tantra is the best foundation for me, Mm -hmm. for them to feel safe. That may be their best foundation. And I am not here to teach or force someone into something that they're not here to learn. Yeah. Because that's what was damaging for me. That's right. So I think people, human development often begins in the, in the skinny side of a funnel and we need the structure. We need the structure. We don't begin in our human journey with wide open expansiveness. That would be too much for a child to handle. So we begin in this tight end of a funnel, but if we grow right, we grow this way. Well, there are some who don't and that's okay. They're angry and frustrated at us, but I refuse to grow in closeness, right? What statement are we making about the gospel? If we get thrown out of a walled city and the first thing we do is build a new walled city that they get thrown out of, we've not, we've not been transformed. So somehow, sometimes you meet old sages and mystics. And among them, I would number people like Brian McLaren, Barbara Brown Taylor, Mirabe Star, these, this sort of people, Richard Rohr. Yeah. The great open hearted, open-handed mystics, they're not aging in tight. The the world isn't uh, every day full of fewer and fewer and people that are right. That's the wrong direction. They're aging this way in humility. Boy, that's what I want. Yeah. However we get there, that's what I want. So 
cool. fun. <laughs> yeah. So do you feel a little better after three years? Or are you still like, oh no, I'm in big trouble? Oh my God. I'm in, I'm in a completely <laughs> different body. Like I don't yeah, even feel like yeah. that same woman. I don't even feel like I have, I yeah. use the same. It's it, yeah. That's I'm, so interesting. I know. I thought that was a fun conversation though. I didn't No. I guess I don't know so much about your journey, but it's, I think, I think you, I think you give yourself to curiosity because curiosity takes you home. If you're, if you're seeking wholeheartedly. I'm just not afraid. Oh, I love curiosity. Of anybody who's curious and wholehearted. Oh, when someone has the answer and they're so certain, it just shuts it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it it's uh, claustrophobic. It's yeah. like it, it. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that word right, but like yeah. it. I love curiosity. It's something you you know internal family systems. So you probably are familiar with the term like resourcing. Mm-hmm. If you get out of your window of tolerance, you resource. Yeah. My resource has always been sitting by the fire with my best friend Shadyac mm-hmm. and asking questions. Yeah. Cause curiosity always he works. Just, he yeah. answers questions with questions. Yeah. It opens you up. Well, so did Jesus. So do all the great mistakes. Yeah. 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 So, um, I, yeah. I told you about the audience question and I'm, I'm going to ask that next. Um, and get us to a closing point so I don't keep you too long. But I do want to say that the spiritual community in Austin, um, I've gone to a couple of events where I feel the same way I felt in youth group. Like, Mm. it's like, oh, there's a formula here. Mm. There's a preying on people's desire to feel purpose and community. Mm. And it's a marketing strategy. Yes. And so it's not just. It's not just a Christian thing. No. Oh gosh, no. Mm-hmm. No. And it's here in Austin and there's, it's not even religious trauma anymore. It's spiritual trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting to see it where like, cause it's typically where people, I mean, I had to, people tend to fling from one to the other. Like some mm. people fling from the spiritual community to it's called new age to Jesus is what they called it. Yeah. Um, but it's so interesting to see that show up in the spiritual community where for me, my guard is, was down more than it ever was with the church. Yeah. Because when you're wounded in a particular space, you think it must be the space. And the reality is it's, it's people trying to control people, you know, fear fills rooms, whether that be in meditation halls or yoga spaces or tantra spaces or Christian churches, fear fills rooms because it makes people come back. If you can convince them that they're broken, Mm -hmm. you can convince them that you have the medicine, you have what they need. And I think that that's what makes something a cult is when you are disempowering them and there's a leader that has what you need. Mm -hmm. What I love about my teacher and about Tantra is it's always handing the power back to you. That's right. And I think that I've been to a couple of events in the spiritual community where that's not been the case. And it's been very yeah. much, you're broken. Here's the answer. And it has really felt like youth camp. And That's it's, so it's, funny. it's startled me. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's, it's, I don't know what to do with it. Well, um, run from it. Don't put your, <laughs> don't put your body in that well, space. What my partner says who, you know, and, yeah. and you guys love each other. It's mm. great. Um, is like, he's like, I'm ready to just remove the woo from the wisdom. Like, <laughs> That's something like, he'd say, isn't it? It is. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think we can call it what it is. I think any place you go where you have to exchange your agency to feel safe, I think is a, is cultic and you need to be out of that. You need, you need to be, you need to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of religious trauma you're talking about offers a product and then explains to you a market and the cost to get in is your agency. You don't get to think or opine or have uh dissonant ideas your job is to learn and to apply and the moment you you mess that up then now you're 
you're on the outside of that walled city. Guys, it's just a repetition of the same storyline. Mm-hmm. It doesn't move people in the right direction, but no matter under what flag it flies, to be honest. Yeah. So I think we know, I think our bodies know better. We just have to be courageous, say, I am not going to put myself in places where my agency is required of me, not in relationships or religious tribes or any other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. What's the the question? The audience question is, how do you reconcile fantastical or unrealistic things like slavery, accepting stories in the Bible? It's an interesting question because slavery isn't even a big feature in the Bible. And slavery, as we know it, is much more nefarious in America after colonization than what, what we experienced in the first century, where I'm guessing they're talking about references in the New Testament that could be talking about the Old Testament. That was generally come and work your debt off and be free. It wasn't based on the color of your skin. What happens mm-hmm. in America much later, the institution of slavery is far darker and far more nefarious. So what you do with things like that, and, and you know, in course, in Southern pulpits for several hundred years, preachers uh, upheld the institution of slavery with scripture. What do you do with that? That doesn't travel across time because it doesn't set people free. Easy. That stays in the old world along with a million other things. And actually, if humanity continues for another 2,000 years, they'll look back at the things we said and they'll say, that's why that didn't work. We have to move forward. I think that's the upward, onward, constant movement of the cosmos. Call it love, call it evolution, call it whatever you want to call it. Everything has a time signature. Mm-hmm. Slavery has a time signature. So does sexism. So does fundamentalism. So does nationalism. My God, nationalism does. It needs to die. It needs to go away because it doesn't set things free. It doesn't mm-hmm. set all things free. So. That's how I would answer that. I had a neighbor that uh, was stayed in an abusive marriage for decades because the pastor told her the scripture, mm-hmm. uh, submit to your husband's even if he strikes you or whatever yeah. the scripture is. And I remember Stan speaking on that and mm. it being like, it, it was like su- such a beautiful articulation of it's a sacred text bound by time. That's right. There is like, that makes so much sense. It's got a time signature. Everything yes. does. But yeah. I also struggle with why are we not seeing nearby stars mm-hmm. and Paul Selig's and Andrew Harvey's and uh, Richard War's books as the new sacred text. Like who, who isn't who isn't seeing that? Because I am. Thank you. <laughs> but I mean, like, if that was a yeah. channeled text by God, yeah. So are these, but these are relevant to this time. That's right. You know? well, so were those things to that time. Right. So when, the, when you know, nothing was written about Jesus until about 40 years after he died. And when they finally sat down to write those things, they had decided these were the sacred pieces of this story. Well, that's fantastic. And I love that because over time, those have functioned to set people free if we use them well. Well, then in the third and fourth century, they say, okay, no more teaching. These are the only things. Of course they did that because, you know, people were moving in a direction where some odd things were getting mixed in. They wanted to clarify that. So they locked it down for them. But to say that the spirit of God doesn't flow through the writings of Richard Rohr is to actually be like, that's beyond belief to say that the spirit can only move in this text. Are you kidding me? Read Richard Rohr again, read Mary Star again, go back and read Robin Wall Kimmerer. You tell me that's not sacred. It's all sacred, Jade. It's all sacred. There is no division anymore. Rob wrote a book called everything is spiritual. That was his argument there. The mystics teach us that all is one and one is all. There's no division. There's no handy division that says that's secular. This is spiritual. This is of God. This is of the, of the flesh. Despite what Paul says, he's working it out too, best he can. 
all things are not working of the life of God. That's how I see it. So I find actually fresher, more readily accessible meaning in the writings of many other people now than sometimes I even do in the text. I've been reading it for too many years. I know too much about what I was told that it ought to say. And so when I need a moment of inspiration, I'm not reaching for Thessalonians. I'm reaching for Richard Rohr or Rob Bell. And if that's scandalous, maybe that's not your story. That's fine. Follow your muse. I'll I mean, follow I mine. Kind of, my mouth waters at the word scandalous. So I'm, I'm okay with <laughs> I'll have that. to use a different word. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. Um, all right. I'd like to end with, um, before the lightning round, a message of hope for those who do carry religious or spiritual trauma. Yeah. Well, you can be free. Your body knows. Follow your body. Mm. Unfold in spaces that are safe for all of you, the curiosity, the wounding, the trauma, and the hope. Um, It is not in the nature of the human spirit to die and go away. You can exile that energy, but it will come back. So get yourself into a safe space and watch it come back. Mm. All things are renewed. All things come back to life. Some seeds sit dormant for a really long time, but it is in the nature of life to move forward and continue to rebirth. It's what the cosmos is made out of. And so however dark and difficult the trauma, new life is the promise. Just get yourself in a safe space and watch what happens. That's my encouragement. Yeah, and I love that you use the word unfold. Yeah. Because um, it is, it's an unfolding. We sing that song at church all the time. We're not broken, we're not breaking, we're not broken, we're unfolding. That's we're so unfolding. Good. That's it. It's my, it's... I, I have and the ampersand tattooed on my hand because and has always been a favorite word. It, like yeah. I always thought it was so hopeful. Mm-hmm. And then I kept hearing you say the word unless, unless yeah. in scripture yeah. or in, in, in your sermons. And uh, I don't even feel like they're sermons. They're more like live podcast episodes. Oh, how fun. <laughs> well, that, may, that changes everything, doesn't it? But the word unless, I was like, ooh, yeah. unless. Unless. I use that as a pivot. It's so like, hopeful. This is what we were taught, and that would make perfect sense unless that's not at all the message of Jesus. Um, you know. The whole brain opens up, unless yeah, the whole yeah. heart opens up. Yeah. And I feel that way about the word unfolding. Like, yeah. oh, I'm just unfolding. And the beautiful thing is that the new people that we are today couldn't have unfolded this way back then, and that's okay. There wasn't the space. That's right. And get yourself where you can fully unfold. Mm-hmm. where shame and judgment and isolation are not thrown in your face. Then do spiritual curiosity and then spiritually seek in that space. And it all comes, falls right into place. Yes. Yeah. All right. Good. Fun. Okay. So lightning round in the show, if you could have the whole world read one book, which would it be? Oh crap. Right now? <laughs> right now? Um, in the Bible, I'm turning off the no, mic. <laughs> no, no. Um, I'm just kidding. Oh gosh. Right now, honestly. Um, the Bible is a beautiful book. <laughs> it is. That's why I still study it. No, if I could have anybody read one book right now, it yeah. would be Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Ball Kimber. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you could whisper one phrase to everyone on the planet, what would it be? You're made of love. Yeah. I don't know. And if you could hug your younger self right now, what would you say? Don't be afraid. Mm. Just be you. All right. And where can people listen to your messages? Um, uh, you can go to the website, austinnewchurch.com, or you can follow us on Facebook and all the sermons go to podcast. My favorite way to listen is just to go to Spotify yeah. and the sermons in condensed form or without the announcements and all the other things just show up on generally on a Monday night or a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. That's where you can follow it. Austin New Church. That's where we are. Hopefully you'll write a book. Someday. You've been talking yeah. about that with a good friend recently. Who knows? Yeah, that's yeah, exciting. Knows? Well, this is fun. Yeah, good deal. yeah all thank right. you. Hmm. 
All right, you guys, I'm so thankful to have shared Pastor Jason with you today. I hope that oh, I hope that you feel that there is more space for you to unfold in these areas. There may not have been a big enough space when we were children or for our parents to unfold in these ways, to ask questions, to get curious, to feel into our bodies and say, hmm, I don't know, this just doesn't feel right. To allow ourselves to doubt, to allow ourselves to have that feeling of uh, unconditional love from God in the way that we know that we can't be separate. We can't be abandoned by God. It flips the idea of original sin on its head into original goodness. It's a story of hope and uh, instead of fear. And I also know it's a challenging story. When I first started to open up to it, it was really hard for me. I went through a dark night of the soul because it felt like, wait, everything I thought was true is not. I was so certain. I was so certain. And I believed in these things so firmly. And to then realize that a lot of things had been taken out or twisted or taken so literal and used for power, it was a dark night of the soul for me. Because then it was like, well, what is real? What is true? What can we trust? I believed this for 35 years. So, if you're feeling like this is rubbing up against you a little uh, and it feels a little hard, have some compassion on yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Go slow. But just allow yourself the space to question, to even doubt, to ask questions and, and, and get curious. Hmm. Is what I was is what I was always taught. Does that actually feel true in my body? And I know that's actually a scary question to ask. I'm here to support in any way that you need. One of my big passions is helping others heal their religious wounding and to help others feel that their sexuality can be merged with their spirituality instead of kept separate. So please reach out to me if you need support in those areas. If you're more, um, if you're intrigued or curious about my um, story around how I was raised and what that wounding was like and how I healed it, again, please uh, let me know on Instagram or put it in the, uh, I would love for you to leave a review, put it in the review section and I'll record a solo cast on it. All right. I'll thank the affiliates. Uh, <clears throat> you can find all of my programs and sign up for my coaching at jade-brice.com. Uh, you can go to the show notes to sign up for the cock worship course. Uh, yes, I'm bringing that up after interviewing a pastor because cock worship is holy and it's beautiful and it's incredibly healing. So I'm so excited to take this course. I had been praying for something like this and I found it. So I'm so excited to be an affiliate for it. Underneath that link, you can find a link for Gene Keys. <clears throat> Gene Keys is kind of like human design. Uh, it's like an internal GPS system uh, to help yourself understand 
yourself more and in deeper ways. There's courses on love, on prosperity, uh, on dreams, and uh, anything that you click on from this link, I'll get a small cut. So it would mean the world. And then all pleasure wands and yoni eggs. I love my cervical wand. I love my yoni egg. They've got beautiful altar items there that, that are used for pleasure tools. There's a link there as well, but it's wands, W-A-A-N-D-S.com. Code Jade gets you a discount there. And then all things infrared at higher dose, code Jade75 for $75 off. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and being on this journey with me. It would mean so much if you would leave a review or share an episode with a friend. You can also join me on Instagram at Untamed and Unshamed Podcast. As always, be a light, stay open, and remember, you belong here. But we got what it takes. For the cycle to break Revolution